morning, church. And good morning to those joining us live stream today. So we're in a sermon series entitled Spiritual Kryptonite. If you will recall, uh, the spiritual kryptonite for us is sin. Of course, it's in the sin category. And specifically, it's the sin of idolatry. Now, idolatry, when we were talking about this last week, idolatry is when anyone, any person, whether a believer or unbeliever, turns away from God and seeks to satisfy cravings and desires that they have in some ungodly way, in some way that's outside of the will of God. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.5, 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. A covetous man is an idolater. Coveting is desiring something, a strong desire, a craving for something that is outside of the will of God. So again, that's an idolater, the Bible says. Somebody's turned away from God is seeking to satisfy these cravings or desires in ungodly ways. Now, in the Old Testament, Cain was warned by God. Remember, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain began to go into sin, and, and God warned him in Genesis 4-7, watch out, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So our enemy, sin, sin is very deceitful. It's deceptive, it's very subtle, and a powerful enemy. And uh, God had said to Cain, you must subdue sin. You must master sin or it will master you. Same for us. We must subdue and master sin. How do we do that? It's very simple, really. It's obedience to God. It's obedience to God's commandments, God's word, God's will, and God's way. Paul writes in Romans 6.16, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Very similar to what God had said to Cain. Cain did not subdue sin. We as Christians are called upon to, be, to master sin. And actually, we have great advantages over Cain or anybody in the Old Testament. So we're Christians in the New Testament. So number one, nobody in the Old Testament had had their heart regenerated. When we become a Christian, when we're born again, the Bible says God regenerates our hearts and replaces our dead hearts with living hearts that are responsive to God. So we have regeneration. We have the Holy Spirit. When you were baptized, you received the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. What's he doing in there? <laughs> well, his mission and his ministry is to help us live lives to God, holy lives, to obey the Lord. What are we praying every day? among other prayers. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches you will strengthen me with power through your Spirit in my inner man so I can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit so that I can produce the fruit of Spirit in my life. This is the positive side. Live for God. Have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's all the Spirit working in me. We have regeneration. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God's grace. To help us as Christians. In the Old Testament, that wasn't there. Now, there's grace that is forgiveness, but the New Testament often speaks of grace as a power that God gives us to live holy lives. Hebrews 12, 28. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Grace enables us to serve. So, we have all these advantages. If we've got regeneration, the Holy Spirit, we've got the grace of God, how is it that sometimes some of us allow sin to enslave us rather than us subduing sin in our lives. That can only happen when Satan convinces us that sin can satisfy some desire or craving that we have that obedience to God 
will not satisfy. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul writes, the strength of sin is the law. Now, what does that mean? That's an odd thing. The strength of sin is the law. Not every time that Paul writes about the law is he speaking of the law of Moses. The Bible speaks of the law of law in different ways. There's the law of Christ. There's a law of love. There's a law that God writes on our hearts. Right here, when, when Paul writes, the strength of sin is the law, I believe what he's talking about is our posture toward the commandments of God. Not just Old Testament. There are hundreds of commandments in the New Testament for Christians. But to the will of God, the Word of God, and the commandments of God, if a person, even a Christian, views God's commandments as constraining us, as restricting us from something that would meet some need or desire that we have, that's a very dangerous posture for us. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. We're going to be talking about Balak and Balaam today. Let's look at a prophet out of sync to start with, a prophet out of sync. So you got Balak and Balaam. Now, these are two names that sound very similar. So we're going to try hard to differentiate between these two. Balak is a king, and he's got a K in his name, right? Balak, So the K is for king. Balak's the king. He's the king of Moab and Midian. And Balaam is a prophet. So I'm going to go back and forth. And I, while I'm speaking today and telling their story, I'm going to try and keep them straight, not say Balaam when I mean Balak and Balak when I mean Balaam, but just to differentiate between these two. Balak is a king. And he's king of Moab and Midian. And he's, they, these people are scared to death because Israel, the nation of Israel, is heading their way. And this is in a time period right after Israel's been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. And remember how that happened. God went to war against Egypt, the ten plagues. And so God has just decimated the Egyptian economy and killed the firstborn son of all the Egyptian families. And he's, he's warring on behalf of Israel. Now Israel is headed toward Balak, the king, and Moab, and Midian. Now, Balak knows there's a prophet of God in Moab. There is a, a man who genuinely hears the voice of God, and that's Balaam. And so he sends a message. These, uh, these dignitaries from his kingdom, full of honor and status, take a lot of money, and they go to Balaam. Numbers 22.6. They say, please come and curse these people for me, meaning the Israelites, because they're too powerful for me. And then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. And Balaam, the prophet, replies in verse 8, Stay here tonight. In the morning I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials of, Bal of Moab stayed there with Balaam. And that night, so Balaam prays to God. And in verse 9 we read, God responds, Who are these men who are visiting you? Now there are a lot of commentators who believe that the gist of what God is saying to Balaam when he says, Who are these men visiting you? is something along the lines of, who are these men to me? Who are these men to me? Why are you even talking to me about these men? I have a covenant relationship with Israel. I'm blessing them. I'm with them. The Moabites and the Midianites, these are the people on the way out, and you're coming on their behalf. Why are you even praying to me about this? You know, there's some things that we, we frankly don't need to pray about. You know, do, we don't need to pray about whether or not we should be a part of a local church. The Bible's made that very clear. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We don't need to pray about whether or not we should be generous and give with the financial resources that we have. I mean, the Bible says, if you have been taught, share all good things with your teacher, I mean, bless the church that you're a part of. 
financially. We don't need to pray about whether or not, hey, should I move in with my boyfriend? Should I move in with my girlfriend? Should, should I have a relationship with someone who's already married? Should I be in a same-sex relationship with a person? You know, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, condemns all of those kinds of things and more. There are many things we simply don't need to pray about. But Balaam brings this to the Lord, and that was an inference. But in the next exchange, God makes it crystal clear what his word is Numbers 22, 12, but God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So no commentary needed there, pretty straightforward. And then in verse 13, the next morning Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now I've capitalized refused there because it, it may give us a little window into Balaam's heart. He's being obedient to the command of God and the letter of the law, but his heart may not be in it because he, he doesn't say, well, the, the Lord's will is that I don't go, and so I'm not willing to go. He says, the Lord's refused to let me go. Let's say your teenage daughter, Mabel, gets a phone call from her friends, and her friend says, Mabel, we want to go shopping at the mall tonight and go to the movie, and we want you to go with us. And so Mabel comes and asks you, can I go out with my friends tonight shopping and to a movie? And you say, Mabel, you know, Saturday night's our family night, and we'd really much rather you stay here with us. It's very important. And so the friends come knocking at the door. Mabel, come on, we're ready to go. We want you to go with us. And Mabel says, I'm sorry I can't go. My parents have refused to let me go. Now, where's Mabel's heart? What's she really saying? Oh, I'd much rather be with you, but I've got to stay here with my boring family for family night. Her heart's not in it, and that, again, this is an inference, but it appears that Balaam's, you know, Balaam loved money, and he loved honor, and he wanted to go and help the king, but God refused to let him go. So, now we have a sweeter deal. Balak is the kind of king who won't take no for an answer. So he sends even more important dignitaries with greater honor and more money. And in Numbers 22, 16, he says in this message to Balaam, I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people. Now, if your neighbor says to you, I'm going to reward you handsomely and I'll do whatever you say, nah, may or may not be enticing to you because it depends on your neighborhood that you live in and his status. But if a king says that, it might get your attention. And this got Balaam's attention. Hey, when I was growing up, there was a comedian called Flip Wilson. Anybody remember Flip? And he had a saying, uh, his saying was, the devil made me what? The devil made me do it. And it was kind of funny at the time, but it's not really a true saying. The devil can't make me do anything. And the devil can't make you do anything. All he can really do is entice us. James says, James 1.14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. So in the Old Testament, the Bible often speaks of demons uses the terminology, calls them familiar spirits. In other words, Satan assigns spirits to people to become familiar with them, where their weaknesses are, where the chinks are in their armor. There are spirits, probably evil spirits, who know you. They know your history. They know your parents. They know your grandparents. Generational sins that are passed down, they know just what buttons to push. And Satan knew Balaam. And Satan knew his buttons. He was greedy and covetous for money and for honor. And so that's how he's coming at him. Now, in uh, verse 18, Balaam seems to give a good response. Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not 
do anything great or small beyond the command of the Lord my God. Again, I could not. I would, but I can't. But then in verse 19 we see, he says, but stay here one more night and I will see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. Boy, so he's going to go back and ask God again because maybe God was just holding out so Balaam could get a sweeter deal and a little more money and prestige. Who knows? And so he prays again. And in verse 20 we read, since God's response, since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. So their tables have turned, and Balaam saddles up his donkey, and he goes along with the men, these emissaries from Balak, but in verse 22 we read, but God was angry that Balaam was going. What do we have, a passive-aggressive God here? Is God a schizo? So first God says no, and then God says yes, but now after saying yes, God is angry with Balaam for doing what he allowed Balaam to do. What's going on? Have you ever heard uh, the saying, a little knowledge can be dangerous? So Balaam has a little knowledge. He knows, he, he knows enough to know that if he violates the letter of the command of God, he can't be blessed. But he keeps coming back. He wants and covets that, mo that money and that prestige, so he keeps coming back. He still craves it. And this blinds him to a greater deception and a greater idolatry, which is this. Sometimes, if we continue to pursue that which God has clearly forbidden to us, either in his word or in answer to prayer, then sometimes God will give it to us and then judge us for it. He'll let us go our way and have it and then discipline us for it. You say, I don't know about that, Steve. That, that just doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound right. I'll give you an example. Uh, again, let's go back to the nation of Israel. After they've come out of Egyptian bondage for many, many years, they were a theocracy, only true theocracy in history, which means God was their king, God was their leader, no human king. God was directly leading them. But there came a time when the Israelites decided they didn't like that setup. They wanted a human king. All the other nations had a king. So they told Samuel the prophet, go tell God, we want a human king like the other nations. And God told Samuel, I'm sorry, Samuel told God, and then God replied to Samuel, that's not a good idea. Let me tell you what a king's going to do. A king, number one, is going to take their daughters and bring them into the palace. They're going to have to cook and clean and make perfume and do other, all these other duties for the king. A king's going to take their sons, going to draft them into the army. They're going to have to fight his wars. A king's going to take their best fields and their best livestock, and he's going to tax them. All this is going to go to the king. And in a few years, they're going to be crying out to me for relief from the king, and I'm not going to help them. He said, take that back. So Samuel took the message back to the Israelites, told them all of that, and the Israelites responded, eh, we still want a king. All the other nations have a king. Samuel brought this message back to the Lord, and the Lord said, Give them a king. And so they got their kings. If you know the history of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, it was awful. Those kings did all those things that God warned about and more. I mean, we, I could talk about the, the people cried out for meat when they were being fed manna. And God gave them the meat and then judged them for it. We could talk about uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, the, the father who had two sons and the younger one asked for his inheritance even though his dad wasn't dead yet. 
And the son wasn't ready for it yet. And the father, who's a picture of God, gave him the inheritance and he misspent it, wound up in poverty in a pig pen. Sometimes when we crave and desire those things that are out clearly outside the will of God by word or answer to prayer, God will give them to us. He'll let them have it. He'll let us have them and discipline and judge us for it. Now let's continue. It's a very dangerous, detrimental position to be in. Uh, let's continue with a smart donkey. The smart donkey. So here goes Balaam. He's got some of the emissaries with him. They're en route to Balak so that he can go and curse the Israelites. And then an angel of the Lord, the Bible says an angel of the Lord came and stood in their path. Now remember the angels are not little cherubs, little fat babies with wings and bows and arrows. They're these huge, intimidating beings. And God had opened the eyes of the donkey that Balaam was riding so he could see the angel of the Lord, but Balaam could not see the angel of the Lord. And so the donkey sees this angel blocking their path with this huge sword. So the donkey veers off the path into a field, and Balaam beats the donkey and guides him back onto the path. They're moving on down, and now the angel of the Lord is, is standing in between two narrow walls on the path, and the donkey's trying to get by the angel of the Lord. So he, he leans up against the wall and crushes Balaam's leg against the wall. I rode a horse like that one time. Crushed his leg up against the wall, and so Balaam beats that donkey again and gets him moving on down the path. And then finally, the angel of the Lord is standing before them in a place in the path where there's no way to get under, around, or over. It's going to have to go through, and the poor donkey just lays down on the path underneath Balaam. And Balaam beats that donkey a third time. And then the Bible says that God opened the mouth of the donkey. And we read in Numbers 22, 28, the donkey says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? <laughs> and there's this heated exchange taking place between the donkey and Balaam. And finally, God opens Balaam's eyes so he can see what the donkey sees, which is the angel of the Lord. Now, by the way, uh, you may know, many scholars believe when you read of the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, not just any angel, not like Michael or Gabriel, but the angel of the Lord, many scholars believe, and I agree, that that's a theophany. That's a physical manifestation of God himself. Uh, many people believe the second person in the Trinity, which would have been Jesus, during Old Testament times. And so God opens the eyes of Balaam so he can see the angel of the Lord. And the angel says in verse 32, Why did you beat your donkey these three times? Look, I've come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. So the donkey had saved Balaam's life. Now, you would think at this point that Balaam would say to the emissaries of the king of Balak, guys, I'm out of here. I'm obviously on the wrong path. Besides that, I don't need all your money. I got a talking donkey. I can make a fortune with this thing. But he doesn't. Instead, look at what he says. Numbers 22, 34. He says to God, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Really, Balaam? If it displeases you? He doesn't know by now that God does not want him to do this. And in fact, he does continue on with the emissaries from Balak. Now, God does not allow him to curse Israel when the time comes. However, 
Balaam comes up with a loophole. He does an end run, comes up with his own strategy to advise Balak on how he can undermine the nation of Israel. Balak follows his advice to the detriment of Israel. I really believe if Balaam had repented and changed his heart at this point, things could have ended well for him, but they didn't. He died under the judgment of God. Now, so, when I was growing up, we lived close to a drive-in movie theater. It's like two blocks from our house. Anywhere we drove someplace in Jacksonville, we had to drive past the movie theaters, right at the corner of University Boulevard and Richard Road. So we would drive right past it. At night, it had a big fence around it, but I could look and I could see stuff that was on the screen. I would, we would drive by and I would always crane my neck, see what's playing up there at the drive-in movie theater. And my dad took us to a lot of movies. And we saw movies like uh, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes and Flubber and Son of Flubber and The Shaggy Dog and Herbie the Love Bug. Took us to see all these movies. But, so I'm about 11 years old. I don't want to see a Disney movie. I want to see a horror movie. I mean, I can see on the marquee what's playing at the theater. Dad, take me to a horror movie. Dad said, no, you don't need to see a horror movie. You're not ready for a horror movie. Dad, I want to see a horror movie. Come on, I got to see a horror movie. I really, I mean, I was just bugging him. I was relentless. You know what a brat, you know how an 11-year-old can be a brat, a real brat? And I was, I was terrible. I was relentless. Dad, come on, don't you love me? Take me to a, I want to see the horror movie. So finally, my dad relented, and he took me and my brother to see a horror movie. This ranks as one of the three most traumatic experiences of my entire life. This was almost 50 years ago. I, I remember the name of the movie, and I remember it was like it was last night. So we were not five minutes into that movie, and I'm begging my dad to take us home. I laid down on the floorboard of the car. I reached up there, you know, that little uh, speaker box that hangs on the, used to hang on the window to turn the volume all the way down. I did not want to hear what was going on on the stream. Dad, please take us home. No, you're going to watch this movie. Dad, please. So finally, I mean, we didn't stay for the whole movie, but we didn't leave as soon as I wanted to leave. But we left finally. And I was asking my mom about this last week, uh, just to make sure I had my facts right. And I said, you remember that? I said, that sure was traumatic that Dad took us to that movie. She said, you deserved it, <laughs> which I did deserve it. You know, so what we're talking about here is a posture. I mean, why did, why did my dad do that to me? Because he hated me, right? He wanted to see me squirm at the movie. He wanted me. I had nightmares for weeks. Never wanted to see another horror movie. I don't think I ever have seen it. I don't go to slasher movies. I don't like that whole genre. Uh, it was traumatic because my dad hated me, right? No, he loved me. He didn't want me to go in the first place. Because he loved me, and he knew what was best for me. He took me to the movie. Because there are some lessons that sometimes we have to learn the hard way. And we can only learn through pain and suffering. And likewise, how do we look at the will, the word, and the commandments of God? David said that it was his joy to follow God's commands. He loved the commandments of the Lord. Do we look at the commandments, even the restrictions that are in God's Word, something that is keeping us from meeting some need or some desire that would make us so happy if we only could get that, but God's restraining us? Or do we understand that God loves us? And that's the reason there are restrictions in the Word and there are commandments 
in his word. It's all a, a question of posture and how we see our Father. And even some of the good things. You know, we're talking about things that we shouldn't have and we know are against the word, the will of God. Even some of the good things that we may want and desire, and for some reason God does not seem to be providing those, could be for companionship, could be from relief of some pain, could be some financial situation where we're not winning the lottery and the funds don't seem to be coming through, could be from, for relief of grief that we're experiencing, or whatever it may be. And we say, why is it, what's wrong with God? Why isn't he doing this for me? It can never be because God doesn't love us. God is not kind to us. God is not good to us. His posture toward us is one of kindness, love, goodness. He always wants to bless us. Sometimes that which we lack or think that we lack in our lives is to, is to point us to the truth and the reality that ultimately what we lack is a deeper, richer relationship with God. It's God who satisfies. It's God who meets all, ultimately, all of our needs. Let those, those things that we lack and miss drive us to a deeper relationship with God. Now, I don't have, I'm going to end here with Psalm 63. I don't have it as a slide for you. Uh, I complete my slides generally on Tuesday, but Psalm 63 was in the one-year Bible reading for Thursday. But I read that, and I thought, that's it. It was written by David during a time when he was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. He was homeless, living in caves and holes in the ground, had no companionship. Often he was hungry and thirsty. And this is what he writes. This is what he learned through that time of lack and suffering. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I will lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. I'm talking about what satisfies us. Ultimately, it's God. Nothing else. Everything else is idolatry. Ultimately, it's God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the many times you have undoubtedly withheld from us things that we thought we wanted, but were not good for us. We even thank you for the times when you let us have the things that weren't good for us, and we suffered because that suffering teaches us that you are true, right, and good and have our best in your heart and your mind. And we thank you, God, that ultimately it is you who satisfies, you yourself who satisfies every need that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.